Welcome to Episode 7 of Hysteria. Today we are reading The Cold Embrace by Mary E. Braddon, published in 1860. Mary Elizabeth Braddon was born in 1835 and was a popular novelist during the Victorian era. She was stepmother to five children and gave birth to six herself. She wrote 80 novels in her lifetime, much of which was supernatural fiction. She founded Belgravia Magazine in 1866 and was an editor for Temple Bar Magazine. Parallels between Mary's life and the cold embrace might include her own father's infidelity, which led to the dissipation of her family. Her flair for the theatrical and stunning ability to set a scene could stem from her time as an actress prior to writing. The Cold Embrace was her first successful ghost story. This story is read by Brianna Aiken. Let the hysteria begin. The Cold Embrace by Mary Elizabeth Braddon He was an artist. Such things as happened to him happened sometimes to artists. He was a German. Such things as happened to him happened sometimes to Germans. He was young, handsome, studious, enthusiastic, metaphysical, reckless, unbelieving, heartless. And being young, handsome, and eloquent, he was beloved. He was an orphan, under the guardianship of his dead father's brother, his uncle Willem, in whose house he had been brought up from a little child, and she, who beloved him, was his cousin, his cousin Gertrude, whom he swore he loved in return. Did he love her? Yes. When he first swore it, it soon wore out this passionate love. How threadbare and wretched a sentiment it became at last in the selfish heart of the student. But in its golden dawn, when he was only 19 and had just returned from his apprenticeship to a great painter, and they wandered together in the most romantic outskirts of the city at rosy sunset, by holy moonlight or bright and joyous morning, they keep it a secret from Wilhelm as he has the father's ambition of a wealthy suitor for his only child, a cold and dreary vision beside the lover's dream. So they are betrothed and standing side by side when the dying sun and the pale rising moon divide the heavens. He puts the betrothal ring upon her finger, the white and taper finger whose slender shape he knows so well. This ring is a peculiar one, a massive golden serpent, its tail in its mouth, the symbol of eternity, it had been his mother's, and he would know it amongst a thousand. If he were to become blind tomorrow, he could select it from amongst a thousand by the touch alone. He places it on her finger, and they swear to be true to each other forever and ever, through trouble and danger, sorrow and change, In wealth or poverty, her father must needs be one to consent to their union by and by, for they were now betrothed, and death alone could part them. But the young student, the scoffer at revelation, yet 
the enthusiastic adorer of the mystical asks, Can death part us? I would return to you from the grave, Gertrude. My soul would come back to be near my love. And you, you, if you died before me, the cold earth would not hold you from me. If you loved me, you would return. And again, these fair arms would be clasped around my neck as they are now. But she told him, with a holier light in her deep blue eyes than had ever shone in his. But she told him, with a holier light in her deep blue eyes than had ever shone in his, that the dead who die at peace with God are happy in heaven and cannot return to the troubled earth, that it is only the suicide, the lost wretch on whom sorrowful angels shut the door of paradise, whose unholy spirit haunts the footsteps of the living. The first year of their betrothal is past, and she is alone, for he has gone to Italy. He has gone to win fame, perhaps, but it is not the less bitter. He is gone. Of course, her father misses his young nephew, who has been as a son to him, and he thinks his daughter's sadness no more than a cousin should feel for a cousin's absence. In the meantime, the weeks and months pass. The lover writes often at first, then seldom. At last, not at all. How many excuses she invents for him. How many times she goes to the distant little post office to which he is to address his letters. How many times she hopes only to be disappointed. How many times she despairs only to hope again. But the real despair comes at last and will not be put off anymore. The rich suitor appears on the scene, and her father is determined she is to marry at once. The wedding day is fixed for the 15th of June. The date seems to burn into her brain. The date, written in fire, dances forever before her eyes. The date, shrieked by the furies, sounds continually in her ears. But there is time yet. It is the middle of May, for a letter to reach him at Florence. There is time for him to come to Brunswick, to take her away and marry her, in spite of her father, in spite of the whole world. But the days and weeks fly by, and he does not write, he does not come. This is indeed despair which usurps her heart and will not be put away. It is the 14th of June. For the last time, she goes to the little post office for the last time she asks the old question, and they give her for the last time the dreary answer. No, no letter. For the last time, for tomorrow is the day appointed for the wedding. Her father will hear no entreaties. Her rich suitor will not listen to her prayers. They will not be put off a day, an hour. Tonight alone is hers. This night, which she may employ as she will. She takes another path and which leads home. She hurries through some by streets of the city, out onto a lonely bridge, where he and she stood so often in the sunset, watching the rose-colored light glow fade and die upon the river.
He returns from Florence. He had received her letter. That letter blotted with her tears, entreating, despairing. He had received it, but he loved her no longer. A young Florentine, a young Florentine who has sat to him for a model, had bewitched his fancy, that fancy which with him stood in place of a heart. And Gertrude had been half forgotten. If she had a rich suitor, good, let her marry him. Better for her, better far for himself. He had no wish to fetter himself with a wife, had he not his art, his eternal bride, his unchanging mistress. Thus he thought it wiser to delay his journey to Brunswick, so that he should arrive when the wedding was over, arrive in time to salute the bride. And the vows, the mystical fancies, oh, gone out of his life, melted away forever, those foolish dreams of his boyhood. So on the 15th of June, he enters Brunswick. By that very bridge on which she stood the night before, he strolls across the bridge and down by the water's edge, a great rough dog at his heels, and the smoke from his short pipe curling in the blue wreaths fantastically in the pure morning air. He has a sketchbook under his arm, and, attracted now and then by some object that catches his artist's eye, stops to draw. When he has done, he admires his drawing, shuts his sketchbook, empties the ashes from his pipe, refills from his tobacco pouch, calls to his dog, and walks on. Suddenly he opens his sketchbook again. This time that which attracts him is a group of figures. But what is it? It is not a funeral, for there are no mourners. It is not a funeral, but a corpse lying on a rude bier, covered with an old sail carried between two bearers. It is not a funeral, for the bearers are fishermen, fishermen in their everyday garb. About a hundred yards from him, they rest their burden on the bank. He walks back two or three paces, selects his point of sight, and begins to sketch a hurried outline. He has finished it before they move. He hears their voices, though. He cannot hear their words, and wonders what they can be talking of. Presently, he walks on and joins them. You have a corpse there, my friends, he says. Yes, a corpse washed ashore an hour ago. Drowned? Yes, drowned. A young girl, very handsome. Suicides are always handsome, says the painter. And then he stands for a little while idly smoking and meditating, looking at the sharp outline of the corpse and the stiff folds of the rough canvas covering. Life is such a golden holiday for him, young, ambitious, clever, that it seems as though sorrow and death could have no part in his destiny. At last he says that, as this poor suicide is so handsome, he should like to make a sketch of her. He gives the fishermen some money, and they offer to remove the sailcloth that covers her features. He lifts the rough, coarse, wet canvas from her face. What face? The face that shone on the dreams of his foolish boyhood. The face which once was the light of his uncle's home, his cousin Gertrude, his betrothed. 
He sees, as in one glance, while he draws one breath, the rigid features, the marble arms, the hands crossed on the cold bosom, and on the third finger of the left hand, the ring which had been his mother's, the golden serpent, the ring which, if he were to become blind, he could select from a thousand others by the touch alone. But he is a genius and a metaphysician. Grief, true grief, is not for such as he. His first thought is flight. Flight anywhere out of that accursed city. Anywhere far from the brink of that hideous river. Anywhere away from remorse. Anywhere to forget. He is miles on the road that leads away from Brunswick before he knows that he has walked a step. It is only when his dog lies down panting at his feet that he feels how exhausted he is and sits down upon the bank to rest. How the landscape spins round and round before his dazzled eyes while his morning sketch of the two fishermen and the canvas-covered beer glares readily at him out of the twilight. At last, after sitting a long time by the roadside, idly playing with his dog, idly smoking, idly lounging, looking as any idle, light-hearted, traveling student might look, yet all the while acting over the morning scene in his burning brain a hundred times a minute. At last he grows a little more composed and tries presently to think of himself as he is. And while he sits on the roadside, trying to separate himself from the scene of that morning, the old diligence comes rumbling and jingling along. He whistles to the dog, shouts to the postillion to stop, and springs into the coop. During the whole evening, through the long night, though he never speaks a word, but then when morning dawns, the other passengers awake and begin to talk to each other. He joins in the conversation. He tells them that he's an artist, that he is going to Cologne and to Antwerp to copy Rubenus in the museum. He remembered afterwards that he talked and laughed boisterously and that when he was talking and laughing loudest, a passenger, older and graver than the rest, opened the window near him and he told him to put his head out. He remembered the fresh air blowing in his face, the singing of the birds in his ears, and the flat fields. He remembered this and then falling in a lifeless heap on the floor of the diligence. It is a fever that keeps him for six long weeks on a bed at a hotel in Aix-la-Chapelle. He gets well and, accompanied by his dog, starts on foot for Cologne. By this time, he is his former self once more. Again the blue smoke from his short meerschaum curls upward in the morning air. Again he sings some old university drinking song. Again stops here and there, meditating and sketching. He is happy, and he has forgotten his cousin, and so on to Cologne. It is by the great cathedral he is standing, with his dog at his side. It is night, the bells have just chimed the hour, and the clocks are striking eleven. The moonlight shines full upon the magnificent pile, over which the artist's eye wanders, absorbed in 
absorbed in the beauty of form. Suddenly, someone, something from behind him, puts two cold arms round his neck and clasps its hands on his breast. And yet, there is no one behind him, for on the flags bathed in the broad moonlight, there are only two shadows, his own and his dog's. He quickly turns round. There's no one, nothing to be seen in the broad square but himself and his dog. And though he feels, he cannot see the cold arms clasped round his neck. It is not ghostly, this embrace, for it is palpable to the touch. It cannot be real, for it is invisible. He tries to throw off the cold caress. He clasps the hands in his own to tear them asunder and cast them off his neck. He can feel the long, delicate fingers cold and wet beneath his touch. And on the third finger of the left hand, he can feel the ring which was his mother's, the golden serpent, the ring which he has always said he would know among a thousand by the touch alone. He knows it now. His dead cousin's cold arms are around his neck. His dead cousin's wet hands are clasped upon his breast, and he asks himself if he is mad. Up, Leo, he shouts. Up, up, boy. And the Newfoundland leaps to his shoulders. The dog's paws are on the dead hands, and the animal utters a terrific howl and springs away from his master. The student stands in the moonlight, the dead arms around his neck, and the dog at a little distance moaning piteously. Presently, a watchman, alarmed by the howling of the dog, comes into the square to see what is wrong. In a breath, the cold arms are gone. He takes the watchman home to the hotel with him and gives him money. In his gratitude, he could have given the man half of his fortune. Will it ever come to him again? This embrace from the dead? He tries never to be alone. He makes a hundred acquaintances and shares the chambers of another student. He starts up if he is left by himself in the public room of the inn where he's staying and runs into the street. People notice his strange actions and begin to think that he is mad. But in spite of it all, he is alone once more. For one night, the public room being empty, he strolls into the street. The street is empty too. And for the second time, he feels the cold arms round his neck. And for the second time, when he calls for his dog, the animal shrinks away. The animal shrinks away from him with a piteous howl. After this, he leaves Cologne, still traveling on foot of necessity now, for his money is getting low. He joins traveling hawkers. He walks side by side with laborers. He talks to every foot passenger he falls in with and tries from the morning till night to get company on the road. At night, he sleeps by the fire in the kitchen of the inn at which he stops. But do what he will, he is often alone. And it is now a common thing for him to feel the cold arms around his neck. Many months have passed since his cousin's death. Autumn, winter, early spring. His money is nearly gone. His health is utterly broken. He is the shadow of his former self, and he is getting near to Paris. He will reach that city at the time of the carnival. 
To this he looks forward. In Paris, in carnival time, he need never surely be alone, never feel that deadly caress. He may even recover his lost gaiety, his lost health, once more resume his profession, once more earn fame and money by his art. How hard he tries to get over the distance that divides him from Paris, while day by day he grows weaker and his steps slower and more heavy. But there is an end at last. The long dreary roads are past. This is Paris, which he enters for the first time. Paris, of which he has dreamed so much. Paris, whose million voices are to exercise his phantom. To him tonight, Paris seems one vast chaos of light, music and confusion. Lights which dance before his eyes and will not be still. Music that rings in his ears and deafens him. Confusion which makes his head whirl round and round. But in spite of it all, he finds the opera house where there's a masked ball. He has enough money left to buy a ticket of admission and to hire a domino to throw over his shabby dress. It seems only a moment after his entering the gates of Paris that he is in the very center of it all, the wild gaiety of the opera house ball. No more darkness, no more loneliness, but a mad crowd shouting and dancing and a lovely Debardeuse hanging on his arm. The boisterous gaiety he feels surely is his own lightheartedness come back. He hears the people around him talking of the outrageous conduct of some drunken student, and it is to him they point when they say this, to him who has not moistened his lips since yesterday at noon. For even now he will not drink, though his lips are parched and his throat burning. He cannot drink. His voice is thick and hoarse and his utterance indistinct. But still this must be his old lightheartedness come back that makes him so wildly gay. The little Debardeuse is wearied out. Her arms rest on his shoulders heavier than lead. The other dancers one by one drop off. The lights in the chandeliers one by one die out. The decorations look pale and shadowy in that dim light which is neither night nor day. A faint glimmer from the dying lamps, a pale streak of cold gray light from the newborn day, creeping in through half-opened shutters. And by this light, the bright-eyed Debardeus fades sadly. He looks her in the face. How the bright of her eyes dies out. Again, he looks in her face. How white that face has grown. Again, and now it is the shadow of a face alone that looks in his. Again, and they are gone. The bright eyes, the face, the shadow of the face. He is alone, alone in that vast saloon. Alone, and in the terrible silence, he hears the echoes of his own footsteps in that dismal dance which has no music. No music, but the beating of his breast. The cold arms are round his neck. 
They whirl him round. They will not be flung off or cast away. He can no more escape from their icy grasp than he can escape from death. He looks behind him. There's nothing but himself in the great empty saloon. But he can feel cold, death-like. The long, slender fingers and the ring which was his mother's. He tries to shout, but he has no power in his burning throat. The silence of the place is only broken by the echoes of his own footsteps and the dance from which he cannot extricate himself. The cold hands are clasped on his breast, and now he does not shun their caress. No, one more polka if he drops down dead. The lights are all out, and half an hour after, the police come in with a lantern to see the house is empty. Near the principal entrance, they stumble over the body of a student who has died from want of food, exhaustion, and the breaking of a blood vessel. This story was written by Mary E. Braddon. Thank you to Brianna Aiken for reading this story. And a massive thank you to Tech Liminal for sponsoring this podcast. Go to techliminal.com to master the technology you need to run your life. Join the hysteria, find more episodes, and learn more about this podcast at hysteriapod.com.